Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Campsite Media. A heads up. This episode discusses sexual abuse. I mean, New Albany was farm town. It was just nothing. Les Wexner built his house out there and then very quickly after was like, all right, I want to establish the country club. He built this beautiful club, I think, sort of as a you know signal of like, this is the type of clientele I want to attract to come out here. In Columbus, Ohio, being a part of that New Albany Country Club community, like that's that's the top tier. You drive in and it's this like beautiful boulevard and there's this gorgeous Georgian brick, massive clubhouse. Jack Nicholas designed the golf course. You have a formal dining room, a family dining room, the Nicholas bar. Have a lot of fond memories of playing tennis and spending time at the pool. And there's a croquet lawn, as you do. Everything was perfect. And so all of a sudden you have this exclusive community that just popped up out of nowhere. And you have all these people moving out to New Albany that suddenly become like the go-to destination in Columbus. I had no idea. Jeffrey Epstein was a part of our community. I had absolutely no idea. I literally was on the phone to my parents, like, was he at our pool? Like, did I grow up with this man, like, being a voyeur? Like, I I don't know. I, I don't think anybody, unless you were, like, really in the inner circle, had any idea that Wexner and Epstein were that close. It, it calls a lot into question. This is Fallen Angel. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. And I'm Justine Harmon. Episode 3, Fantasy Town, USA. Donald Trump had Mar-a-Lago. The Kennedys ruled Hyannis Port. Calvin Klein preferred the Hamptons. But after acquiring Victoria's Secret in 1982, Les Wexner sought to create his own idyllic getaway, one that wasn't already steeped in cultural history. He wanted to create something new and all his own on a plot of farmland about 15 miles from his business headquarters in Columbus. It wasn't just a country club. It was an entire town that Les created out of thin air. 
Here's Les himself. Started with a, a simple idea. I wanted to build a house in the country. And uh, I spent about a year. He wanted to create a suburban utopia so seductive that members of the Ohio elite would have no choice but to uproot their lives and become part of his vision. When Les Wexner first shared his vision in the late 80s, his team of planners joined with village, school, and township leaders to identify shared aspirations. Even though his parents were of Russian-Jewish descent, Les wanted the buildings in New Albany to have this uber-waspy look. Everything was based on 18th-century Georgian architecture, meaning the Georgian period of the British Empire. Ornate single-family homes with decorative columns, rows of oversized windows, and just a shit-ton of red brick everywhere. Through a collaborative process, a model community began to emerge. If you're from Columbus, the Wexners are a pretty prominent family. You know, they have the Wexner Center for the Arts, and, you know, they're very involved in the Ohio State community. So, yeah. That's Blair Soden, who you heard from at the top of this episode. She grew up in Columbus, where everyone's parents seemed to be an executive at L Brands, and spent her childhood practically living at the country club, the town's crown jewel. Everything about the New Albany community felt gilded and special and safe, like it was touched by something extra. There's a set of rules and regulations of you can have this paint color, you can't have this paint color. It's all fenced off by white picket fences. Um, it's it's stunning. And it was 100% a status symbol. If you live in Columbus, and you're like, oh, I live in New Albany. Okay, so Les Wexner invented this Norman Rockwell meets Architectural Digest meets The Truman Show type of town, and he's living there as the king of the Ohio elite. He's 50-ish, and he's still single. Sort of unheard of back then for men to be that old and never been married. So unheard of that Wexner appeared on the cover of New York Magazine with the headline, The Billionaire Bachelor. But he wasn't considered so cool in New York. I once talked to a socialite who'd had dinner with him. She described him as awkward. But everyone in Ohio loved him. People like Harold Levin. I'm looking for the Harold who used to work with Les Wexner. Yeah. Is that you? I am. Okay, yeah. well then you are the man I'm looking for. That's the Harold who was Les's financial advisor way back when. Now, once again, Les Wexner did not talk to us. We sent his spokesperson a list of questions about the reporting in this episode, but he did not respond. But this is what Harold told us. The recording here is a little messy because I didn't have my mic set up. Anyway, Harold says he took his job for less very seriously. It was a family office type thing. Family office. That means a company set up just to manage one family's wealth. Harold told me that when he worked for Les, he had stock power of attorney over his limited stock. That gave him a lot of power in terms of finances. Yeah, I could have taken off to New Zealand or Australia or someplace like that and pledged that you know, goods of stock. But he cared about Les. He was very devoted to him. Harold says he even traveled to Virginia to check out the Georgian architecture that Les wanted for New Albany and traveled to New York to buy apartments that Les wanted there. I, I'll never forget the rats I've seen <laughs> the size of a cat. 
So these two were tight, says Harold, until they weren't. Now, why all of a sudden somebody comes on the scene? I don't know. Harold told me that he understood people. I'm pretty good at figuring out con men, he said. Figuring out, you know, con men. And in the late 1980s, Harold became aware that Les Wexner had a new, very special colleague. A friend, really. And Jeffrey Edward Epstein. I have vacation homes in New Mexico, uh, Palm Beach, New York, and Paris. More after the break. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So how the hell did Epstein get his hooks into Wexner? There was a relationship there, even if Wexner has never been implicated in any of Epstein's crimes. Gabe Sherman, the writer and author, wrote about their relationship in Vanity Fair. The headline, The Mogul and the Monster. Jeffrey Epstein meets Les Wexner in the mid to late 80s. At the time, Epstein's completely unknown, living in a one-bedroom apartment gets control of Wexner's money by at least 1991. And by the time Epstein goes to jail in 2007 uh, and serves an 18-month sentence for soliciting prostitution with a minor, um, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The entire time that Epstein built his sex trafficking ring was the time that he was managing Wexner's money. And so in my mind, there is no way that Wexner escapes some responsibility for enabling Epstein, whether directly or indirectly. So that's a question we're thinking about as you listen to this episode. But let's start at the beginning. The best that I can tell, Epstein and Wexner met sometime around 1986. Um, They were introduced by the insurance mogul, Bob Meister, whose firm handled the corporate insurance for the limited Wexner's company. Meister was in the big corporate insurance business. So his firm sold insurance policies to other large corporations. Through the insurance business, he became close friends with, you know, billionaires and CEOs. And so Epstein was savvy enough to realize that, you know, while Meister wasn't really a household name, he was the gateway to those guys. At this point, Jeffrey Epstein had moved on from being a high school math teacher actually at my high school, the Dalton School on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He'd remade himself as this supposedly genius investment dude. And now he had his sights set on Wexner. 
So this is this really is uh, a sign of Epstein's deviousness. Epstein at the time lied to Meister. He said, hey, I'm hearing on the street that Les Wexner's financial advisors and his lawyer are swindling him and I can get the money back. I know I know what's going on. Like, I want you to introduce me to Wexner. And so Epstein flew out to Aspen um, trying to sell Wexner on some bullshit that, you know, he knows where he was, he, his money was being stolen from and he could find it. Um, and so, you know, Epstein was totally using a lie to gain access to Wexner. Um, and it worked, I mean, it was brilliant. It, it paid off, but it just shows you that Epstein was really willing to do and say whatever he had to. So now Epstein, truffle hunter for moneyed white dudes, was a fixture in Ohio. But not everyone there was impressed, especially not Harold. Epstein was territorial and possessive, and he didn't want anyone else having Les's ear. Harold says Epstein wanted Harold gone, so Harold was out. He says this was the beginning of a very hard time for him. He says his wife left him. His life just fell apart. I had a nervous breakdown, basically. And it was, I, uh. I did some consulting work, but I had a breakdown. Matter of fact, there was a period of time after the divorce that I lived out of my car. Now there was no one in Jeffrey Epstein's way. Sometime around 1990, Wexner officially hired Epstein to be his money manager. And really what that entailed was that Epstein would hand Wexner's money over to other fund managers. Epstein himself, by all accounts, was never much of a trader himself. You talk to bankers on Wall Street, they never heard of him. There's no record of him having, you know, trading uh, accounts with Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. And so basically... Epstein gave the money to other people to manage, and he was obviously in charge of kind of watching over it. But, you know, he did not build Wexner's wealth through his own genius trading. Epstein's true value to Wexner was that he became kind of an all-purpose fixer for him. He insinuated himself into his life in such a way that Wexner came to rely on him to buy art, um, buy and sell properties. Epstein introduced Wexner to rich and famous people in New York. Wexner would have dinner parties and invite Epstein. Epstein basically became his friend for hire, and they seemed to spend all their time together. And so what did Wexner give Epstein? Epstein bought a house from Wexner in Ohio, a 10,000-square-foot mansion next to Wexner's estate. Epstein got a below-market deal on buying a corporate jet that had been owned by the Limited. He bought the house in New York from Wexner. So Epstein and Wexner were pretty intertwined. But there was something else, too. What makes Epstein's deal with Wexner so shocking is that he had general power of attorney, which is a fancy word for saying that it's a piece of paper that they both signed that says that Epstein can do whatever he wants with Wexner's money and it's totally legal. He could write a check to himself. He could buy cars. He could do whatever. I mean, essentially, Wexner's money became Epstein's money from a legal perspective. There are just so few explanations as to why Epstein, who had so little actual experience managing money, would suddenly get such authority. I mean, you only give that kind of power of attorney 
to somebody that you, you know, trust completely. Epstein even lived in Wexner's massive townhouse on the Upper East Side. This is the one the news stories always use when they're covering Epstein, the one where Prince Andrew is peering out the front door. Epstein's Manhattan home was originally purchased by Wexner in 1989. Ownership was later transferred to Epstein. Now, the rumor has always been that Wexner gave Epstein that house for a dollar. But that's not true. Epstein did pay millions of dollars for it. Still, who gives a below-market deal to their financial advisor on their own home? It's just bizarre behavior. And since Epstein had Wexner's power of attorney, he could basically do whatever he wanted. You know, suddenly Epstein, who was living in a one-bedroom apartment at the time he meets Wexner within a few years, is living like, you know, he's worth $200 million. And so it just doesn't add up. Epstein was on the inside, even at events. Let's go back to Cindy Fields, who helped build the Victoria's Secret catalog, the one who talked about the mythical Victoria. She has some stories about those events. Les threw a birthday party for his mother, and I was invited to attend. And I was a single woman living in New York. I didn't come to a lot of these social events in Columbus, but it was suggested to me that I might like to show up occasionally. The dinner party was in a swanky cafeteria. The space was beautifully decorated, you know, round tables, guild chairs, candles, beautiful floral arrangements. Seated to my left was this man that was so handsome. I I thought he was incredibly handsome. And, of course, I introduced myself to him, blah, 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 Jeffrey Epstein. So I'm trying to make conversation with him. And I said to him, oh, so you're the stockbroker. And he said to me, no, I manage the money. So as the evening is winding down, he said to me, Les is having an after party. Why don't you come with me? And there was something that just didn't seem right about it. I was, if you will, the hired help. Cindy means she was an employee of Wexner's not a social contact. And I don't think it's cool to show up uh, with this guy. I don't even know who this guy is, right? So I declined. He called me when I was in Columbus one day and said something so uncouth. He said, uh, you know, I'm frequently in Columbus and I could use some female companionship. And... I said to him, well, I have 500 telephone operators 100 feet away from me. Come on over. Maybe I can introduce you to one. And he very quickly got off the phone. She says she only heard from Epstein one more time when he asked her to come to Aspen with him to a party Les Wexner was having. She declined that offer, too. Luckily, she was in a good position to decline those kinds of offers. But for women who wanted to get involved with Victoria's Secret, they didn't all view Jeffrey Epstein as a creepy interloper. He presented himself as a foot in the door. Because once Epstein was established as Wexner's main man, he started doing something really shocking. He was telling women, random women, that he could get them jobs as models with Victoria's Secret. 
So in the business, that's called scouting, and it's how a lot of models become models. They'll get discovered on their town's main streets or at a flea market, hanging out at the beach. So Epstein was doing the same thing, pretending he was a guy who was looking for models for Victoria's Secret, and he might just discover you and make you a star. Only he had no formal relationship with Victoria's Secret or Ella Brands and was not authorized to scout models on their behalf. And a spokesperson has also said that Epstein was never employed by nor served as an authorized representative of the company. I met Jeffrey Epstein in 1997. This is Alicia Arden, a model in California, and we're playing audio of a press conference she had. She's in an institutional-like room along with her lawyer, Gloria Allred. You know Gloria Allred. She's represented everyone from rape victims to Tiger Woods' mistresses. My friend worked in finance, and Epstein asked my friend whether she wanted to be a model for Victoria's Secrets. She said no, she wasn't a model, but suggested you should meet my friend Alicia because she is a model and she would love to be in Victoria's Secrets. Arden is one of Jeffrey Epstein's first known victims. I sent Epstein my portfolio and all of my pictures. He loved them. He called me directly after receiving them. A few days later, Epstein was at the Shutters Hotel in Santa Monica, California. I knocked on Epstein's door at Shutters and I went into his hotel room. He was wearing a USA sweatshirt, black sweatpants, and he was barefoot. He took my portfolio, but he said, why don't you look like these photographs? I told him that I photographed differently all the time and modeled in different contexts. Epstein told me that he wanted to see my body up close. I was in a skirt and he was touching my bare skin I started to feel scared and I began to cry. I never will forget what he told me. He said, let me manhandle you. And I was feeling terrified. When he seemed distracted on the phone, I pulled my clothes back on I grabbed my portfolio, and then I prepared to leave the room. And as I did, he put $100 on the table. I said, Jeffrey, I'm not a prostitute. I want to be in the Victoria's Secrets catalog. And he responded, let me see what I can do. So yeah, Jeffrey Epstein wasn't only interested in Les Wexner for his money. He was also interested in connections to some of the most beautiful women in the world. In at least one other case, he pretended to be a scout too. 
In 2004, an Italian model says that her modeling booker sent her to that Upper East Side mansion to get a gig modeling for Victoria's Secret. She was told that Jeffrey Epstein was one of the most important people in modeling, a guy who could change her life. She brought along her modeling portfolio. But he took his clothes off, lay down on a massage table, and handed her a vibrator, which she threw at his head. We all know enough about Epstein to know this isn't a huge surprise that he's pulling this stunt. But what about Les Wexner? Merlin of them all. Mr. My Life is Perfect. Did he know that Epstein was going around and doing such things? And if he did know, what did he do about it? More after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So Epstein was really insinuating himself in Wexner's world, working for him, managing the money, as he told Cindy Fields, posing as a scout for Victoria's Secret, which would have seemed to have crossed a major line in his relationship with Wexner, corporate icon, straight-laced good guy with that waspy stronghold in Ohio. We wondered what Wexner knew about all this. Cindy recalled something that happened in the 1990s. Someone who was on my team came into my office very flustered, reporting that it had come to her attention that a man was presenting himself as a recruiter of Victoria's Secret models uh, in New York. And he was using this to lure young women into a hotel room. And she was flustered, and as she should have been, that's pretty appalling behavior. I asked her the name of the man, if she knew the name. Yes, she said, Jeffrey Epstein. So then I knew this was trouble. Um, I mean, like really trouble, um, because he was obviously close to Les, since he attended parties at Les's home, and he, quote, managed the money. So um, I asked my associate to call Les directly, report the behavior, Uh, and ask him to stop it. 
Here's Gabe Sherman again. Executives made it clear that this was not cool, but we know that Epstein continued to do it. He did this with with lots of girls. He, you know, said he could make them a model. He would pay for girls to do like music lessons. And I mean, he just, you know, being a psychopath, he would see whatever leverage he could get on somebody. And if there was a beautiful 17-year-old, he could dangle the idea that I can put you in Victoria's Secret. As far as what Wexner knew or didn't know about the scouting of models for Victoria's Secret, we know that people within the company say they brought it to him, but we don't know exactly what Les Wexner said to Epstein or if he did say something to Epstein or if Epstein cared what he said. Because the thing is, it seems like Epstein just had an amazing amount of influence over Wexner. And now I'm, I'm sort of speculating here, but I, I think a lot of the value that Epstein provided to Wexner was giving him the confidence to kind of live his own life and tell him that it was okay that he didn't need his mother's approval. And so how did Bella feel about Epstein? Wexner's colleagues told me that Bella hated Epstein and didn't like the uh, the hold and the influence that he seemed to have on her son. And there was this infamous moment when Bella fell ill and was unable to, you know, carry on some of her duties with the Wexner Foundation that Epstein stepped in and had her removed from the board of trustees and he assumed her seat on the board. And that is like this moment where people just scratch their heads and wonder how could Les Wexner allow Jeffrey Epstein to push his mother aside. So what exactly was the nature of the relationship between these two men? You're not the only one with questions. During a deposition after Epstein got in trouble in Palm Beach, an attorney for one of his victims asked Epstein whether there was a sexual relationship between the two men. Consider yourself to be bisexual. No. Okay. In any event, uh, you did develop a sexual relationship with Leslie Wexner at some point in time. Is that true? No. Epstein denied that. Wexner has never acknowledged a sexual relationship with Epstein, and he didn't respond to the question we asked about it. In fact, later, he said of Epstein, Being taken advantage of by someone who was uh, so sick, so cunning, uh, so depraved, uh, is, uh, is, is something that I'm embarrassed that I was even close to. That wasn't Wexner's only response. He also said he was, quote, never aware of the illegal activity charged in Epstein's indictment. Everyone from James Stewart writing in in the New York Times, remembering meeting Epstein, grants that he had this undeniable charisma. I talked to Virginia Heffernan, the host of the culture podcast, This is Critical, and a regular contributor for the Los Angeles Times who has written about Victoria's Secret. Now, Virginia has no intimate knowledge of the relationship between these two men, but she's going to share her opinion. You know, who cares if Wexner's, you know, just being blown away by Epstein's charisma, you know, that he wanted to have sex with him or didn't. I mean, in some ways, he wanted much more. He, he trusted him much more than someone who's like falls into bed with someone. I feel like he had some kind of powerful sex appeal for men, 
you know? But you just don't hear any of the women, any of the women who came into his orbit, any of the victims saying, man, I was so blown away by his animal magnetism. Men say the same thing about Vladimir Putin. They say the same thing about Donald Trump. Oh, like he's irresistible charisma. They say that about Mohammed bin Salman. The charisma of this man made me do it. Epstein's physicality is described in very in kind of similar ways that he had this animal presence that like there's something kind of tan and warm about him, piercing eyes, full head of hair. You know, it may be that principle that men buy cars based on the hard-on factor of the car and women look at the specs. It is very strange that men in their laser-like focus and all the things that masculine energy is is supposed to have, you'd think that they would act in their self-interest more. You know, like not buy a terrible car just because it gives them an erection. But in fact, you just see bad decisions made over and over again, um, especially in contemporary history. I mean, Epstein himself was mesmerized with Mohammed bin Salman. And these people have a ton, have just so much money and power. And you just imagine this group of people with heart eyes for each other. Everybody claims to be negotiating peace in the Middle East and also, you know, making a ton of money using their special algorithm. This story of an older, powerful man getting manipulated by a younger, more charismatic shark passes muster, at least in a narrative sense. I watched Succession. But the idea that Les Wexner was a shrewd businessman by day and then easily duped by night, it's hard to believe. Who knows how many girls were lured in by Jeffrey Epstein's story that he could make them a victorious secret model. Girls who were in high school and whose families needed the money. Girls who had never encountered wealth like Jeffrey Epstein's. Girls who were vulnerable. What's evilly great about Victoria's Secret for Jeffrey Epstein's purposes is that, you know, we have a huge history of men posing as model scouts to get girls to come talk to them and say, you know, I, I, here's my card, I'm an agent for models. But this is another thing. This is like you go to these middle class or lower middle class or even quite poor communities and say, I could get you to model for Victoria's Secret. Maybe that's catalog modeling or that's something. It wasn't probably that far-fetched that he could maybe smuggle one of these girls into Victoria's Secret. Pretty soon, Jeffrey Epstein wouldn't need Victoria's Secret or Les Wexner at all. Next time on Fallen Angel, we delve into the seedy side of modeling, far from the shores of Victoria's Secret. At that time, like in the 90s, in the late 90s specifically, it was very prepubescent, Prada, Gucci, kind of Lolita. When I was out there cruising around the world, thinking I had it all figured out, I was a child. The fact of the matter is the only reason people were watching is because it was girls who were practically naked. Fallen Angel is a documentary production from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio and Campside Media. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran for Cadence 13, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and me, Justine Harmon. Executive producers for Campside are Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Matt Scher. 
Narrated and written by Vanessa Gregoriadis and Justine Harmon. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Production led by Paige Heimson. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support and research by Ian Mant, Sean Cherry, Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, Kelly Rafferty, Callie Hitchcock, Natalia Winkleman, Aaliyah Papes, Alex Yablon, and Doug Slaywin. Artwork and graphic design by Kurt Courtney. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Maura Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Our theme song is Heartbreak Hollywood by Ledesi. Original music by Skyline Brigade. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now, each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.